It's a cult Disney with oral hygiene featuring the paranoid American. Welcome to the Occult Disney Podcast. I'm just calling it that at this point. Uh, this is <laughs> Matt. We'll make Comage. it work. Matt Comage is here. Joining me as usual for this run is Thomas Gorens, the paranoid American. How are you? Good, good. Hello, hello. Groove. So, um, yeah, we, we were kind of talking about the 40s is kind of like a weird time for Disney. So we did up to Bambi. It was like easy. <laughs> it's like an easy, you know, sketch line to follow. So. I, the rules seem to be best to um, go with the next big full-length feature production, which would be Cinderella. But th- this one would just stuck out like a sore thumb, victory through air power, and seemed kind of important to talk about. Well, and also, I'm a sucker for chronology, so I think this one technically comes before uh, Cinderella. So if we were going to cover it at all, <laughs> I would have always regretted not doing it in chronological order, just out of my own OCD. No, same here. But um, so, just a few of the ones we're skipping. Um, oh, I forget the Saludos Amigos, uh, Three Caballeros, which they have some live action and they're kind of compiled. There's what Make Mine Music. Um, we, we already... It's actually not horrible. Out of all of the, the spectrum we could cover, it's not the worst. And it actually had a decent representation at Epcot, too. Oh, yeah. Um, I love but... that ride. <laughs> yeah the, the ride was the ride is great but uh but yeah but anyways I, I don't think it's worth covering compared to everything else that we've got out in front of us yeah sorry jack uh, well it's horrible as a movie like if you're like i'm watching a compilation of cartoons it's kind of okay but yeah because <laughs> um i guess mr toad is also that way that was the one where i had to like actually research and be like oh is mr toad like a proper one that i just missed on the radar and I'm like no it's not quite the you know full full production thing and um yeah yeah it, two white guys don't need to sit around and talk about song in the south so also mostly <laughs> live action let's let's remember it doesn't have that much animation so <laughs> although i will say splash mountain was by far the greatest ride at disney world even compared to space mountain and um the the mountain roller coaster one i forgot thunder mountain whatever it was called um splash mountain will always forever in my mind be the best ride that they ever had there and i know that i think they've rebranded it already Oh, have they? Okay, I, t- Tokyo. Maybe they haven't, because um, that one was especially fun. You know, I'm I'm from Atlanta, so that's the hometown stories or whatever. And, have you uh, been to both? Have you been to Splash Mountain on in uh, both continents? That's right. And um, but they're all speaking Japanese in Tokyo, right? <laughs> but is is the ride pretty much the the same experience? Yeah, it's just it's in Japanese, and everything okay. else is the same. Uh, oh, oh, all the way, all the way to like the the big drop in front of the yep yep um the vines. Uh, it's it's more like the Disney World version, I think, which is a little shorter. So I think the land one's a little longer, or maybe it's the other. I've way never been that. to the land one. I've only been yeah. to the Disney World version. Those are slightly different. I think Tokyo is a clone of the Florida one, but yeah. Um, so wife... so recap for Song of the South. The best things that have come out of it, if we ignore Uncle Remus and all of the criticism around it, is that a Splash Mountain was an awesome ride, um, and the I believe supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Was that from that was from Song of the South? Was it not? No, it's, uh, that's um, uh, or sorry, Mary which Poppins. which one? Which is the one from Song of the South? Zippity doo dah. 
zippity doo dah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So that was a that was a good earwig, but yeah, outside <laughs> of that, we're just gonna skip over the rest of that movie. I can't even quite remember what it's about. <laughs> um, but yeah, I took my wife on Splash Mountain like when we were like I guess first dating or just got married. This is a while back, but she hates roller coasters, and um, it was fun because after the drop. She was like screaming at all the animals, being like, You lied to me. You said it was gonna be okay and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so she was she was not a fan of Splash Round. I think that was my my pitch. I was like, Oh, you gotta get on it because it has like, you know, like the the folk tales from like my hometown, right? So <laughs> it always had such a creepy vibe to it. Like it like it almost like it was obviously intentional because the whole story is that you're with Briar Rabbit. And it's getting hunted by, you know, the fox and the bear, I believe. I might be getting some of that wrong. I'm pretty sure it's fox and bear. And uh, but it's like everything is like so, you know, fantastical and and cutesy and like fun things. But then there's also like a fox with a a rifle like aimed at you halfway through the ride or something like that. I don't know if you've been to um Six Flags over Georgia, but they had the the monster have- plantation ride. You've been on the monster plantation? <laughs> I that one doesn't ring a bell, but I, I've been to the Six Flags in Atlanta because that was that's my second favorite ride. There was a huge like glass elevator looking thing, and I think it was called Freefall, and it just oh, dropped yeah. straight down and like slid on its back so that it never actually stopped. Right, right, yeah, yeah. That was that was. I fun. think a kid died on that <laughs> within the last decade too. Like it was but, just uh, too much. <laughs> anyway, if you, if you make it back, the Monster Plantation's fun. It's you know it's like a '70s vintage dark ride. I mean, maybe they've made some updates, and it just has a little drop in the end. It's not like a mountain, but it's it's basically like it's basically like a Splash Mountain on like bad mushrooms or something. <laughs> that sounds right up my alley, man. I'm, I'm actually a little bit bummed that I didn't I didn't go there because I'd been to that that Six Flags two or three times, I think. Of course, you can, you know, these days you say ride and you find a ride through on YouTube, no problem, right? So if you just want to catch the, the same. Vibe, it, it's not the same. I get that. But yeah, <laughs> but I, I've been on. Yeah, it's it's kind of fun. Like, um, like I'm not going to be in Florida anytime soon. So I, I took a look at like the, you know, Star Wars ride throughs because I'm like, I'm not going to be on those anytime in the near future. So <laughs> but yes, yes, it's not the same. I get that. Um, Let's move. Let's move to t- towards our victory through air power financially one of disney's biggest flops but i suppose it achieved its purpose so it wasn't a flop in that way maybe <laughs> that's interesting i see i don't know a lot of the production background of this one i didn't look into it but i would have assumed that this wasn't a commercial creation this was probably made for slash funded by the government was it not not quite the the government was funding of course a lot of the disney um wartime films you know the training films things like this mm-hmm. but this was actually what and one of the reasons i was like we yeah we really should hit this is this was straight up like disney's own project like he had come across the book the the uh geez i didn't write his name now because i'm an idiot but uh <laughs> Seversky, Seversky, that's it so he'd read Seversky's book and was like oh I, I this is what we should do and i think he basically put his own money towards making this interesting the, the, i didn't know the, that i didn't have that context so i was as i was watching this i was truly constantly between like is this something that someone's seeing in a theater or is this something that like a recruit is being forced to watch as part of training like where it's it's weird it like lives in between those two things uh without the context so what who was the ultimate target audience for this this the intention well this was going to be a like in theater thing but the distributor which uh 
maybe it's RKO at the time. I don't remember, but was, you know, Disney didn't distribute mm-hmm. its own movies yet. And the distributor, yeah, yeah, oh, like, I, RKO was almost all of their cartoons, at least. Yeah, so uh, they were basically like, no, <laughs> they were like, this thing's not going to make any money. No way, you know, we're not mm-hmm. even going to bother putting it out. So Disney went out of his way, I think, to have it shown in a few theaters. And uh, Winston Churchill happened to see it, and then and uh, when he was in Toronto, like had a copy shipped over to show Roosevelt. So th- that was the intended audience in the end. <laughs> I mean, I'm paranoid American, and I'm I'm always big in the conspiracy theories. So like, you, you won't ever be able to convince me that the government didn't have some hand in how ha- you know facilitating this, even oh, if yeah, it yeah. looks That's- like a. A Disney like personal thing because this 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 was legitimately um it, there was a boring aspect to it just because by nature anything that's educational just kind of like bores me by default you know it's <laughs> not it's not the fault of whoever's trying to do the teaching it's just like an instant reaction but the animation at times was pretty decent um but the images and the concepts that they were conveying was awesome like I've seen many, many training films and infographics, you know, throughout all my years so far. And this one's up there. I would put this in like the top 10 of Mm -hmm. taking a very complicated series of concepts and visually showing them in a very clear and concise way. So, you you know, like the the average dummy like myself can completely understand it, at least what the idea they're trying to convey, I can understand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there could be deeper things like you mentioned but for me it's almost like an on the nose conspiracy like we have this industrialist like directly <laughs> trying to uh, influence you know <laughs> the what's happening in geopolitics so i'm like th- there could be deeper levels for sure but i'm like eh, it's actually this that that technically is a conspiracy to start with you know like the film itself is like it's it's just not a secret one. <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, I would, I would almost equate it to like you know on on social media or something. You can target you know like the top one percent of you know bankers or something in a certain city, and even though you're advertising it to you know all of Facebook, quote unquote, you're targeting like this. You're essentially targeting like one person in one city, right? Like you can get that specific. And that could be kind of what Disney was doing here where, yeah, I'm going to make this thing and it looks like it's for mass audiences, but I really just need it to be seen by like one of 200 people on the planet. And if one of those people sees it and likes it, then it opens up a new dialogue. And uh, cause, cause it, it's funny on a, on a slightly related tangent here, I was watching a bunch of videos on Disney's original ideas for Epcot and how it was truly like, some industrialist mad scientist kind of thinking like they were going to put like a glass dome over the building they were going to have no retirees everyone had to be uh, employed full-time in order to live inside this epcot city like it was a completely fabricated industrialist you know paradise where the second that you could no longer contribute to the society actively you just like they moved you out somehow <laughs> you know but yeah another thing with this this movie in particular is um when you give it a few minutes thought, especially when once we get into um, you know, Zavarsky stuff, it's like this is really some cold blooded stuff. Which I, I guess that's war, but yeah, it's like just like like you said, they have these nice simple animation. Not simple as in they're easy to make, but uh, easy, easily understood animations. Right. The, the analogies were good. There was one analogy we'll get into in more detail, I'm sure, but where they portray Nazi Germany as a wheel with all these spokes and like all the different ways that our strategies 
would try to attack them and how none of them would work. And they show that the the spokes on the wheel like moving and getting thicker and it's contracting, expanding um, in resistance to all this stuff. And that that's such a complex um, t- concept to sort of communicate and just like the wheel and the spokes and the way they animated it and the way that everything worked was just uh, amazing. Like it was, you know, this is, this is where Disney and I think a lot of animation can really shine and conveying really complicated concepts in just a few frames. Well, you know, thousands of frames, but to me and you, it's uh, a few seconds. Right. The, the other one I thought was quite effective because, you know, we don't, the layman doesn't think about this. The, the, you know, the showing like you can have a three mile runway for land based airplanes and then aircraft carriers, you basically can have puddle jumpers at best. Right. And that's why you can't just come in and let the, the planes rock, you know, I, and maybe now you can more because I guess they have smaller things with worse you know yield yeah. but <laughs> I, I learned a lot of new information and then i say new but this was 1942 right so i'm i'm at least you know uh a half a century or three quarters of a century behind on what i was learning like oh wow i didn't know we could do that it's like well that's what like great grandpa could do <laughs> um there was kind of a world war one equivalent although i think the movie might have come in, actually came out like right after the war but um Windsor McKay, the guy that did Gertie the Dinosaur, uh, he did a sinking of the Lusitania film to, you know, kind of rile people up. But some of that had, you know, this battle animation, which I was like, oh, the people animating this, that that must have been the reference point. That's a that's a deep conspiracy theory in itself, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The yeah, Lusitania. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. But um, I, I'm yeah, but this was the animator just like, OK, here's the thing I want to light that on fire the, the public consciousness version because yeah there's lots of weird stuff going around there was loose let me saying it wrong lustania 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 <laughs> and, and i wanted to, to mention too that like though the infographic aspects of this movie were great like you know beyond phenomenal i can't i can't commend them enough but um outside of some of like the goofier they had like a some very cartoony aspects of like planes flying around and people and like you know the planes like like crashing constantly to kind of like show that uh air flight was unreliable at the very beginning all of that animation is really cool then after as they start getting into like the the more advanced kind of like war planes all of a sudden it's like there's these little cutouts that they're using and they stop animating the planes and the planes aren't like moving through the air it's just like a static image that someone's just kind of like you know, adjusting slightly. And the only thing that gets animated is like some smoke or contrails coming out of it. Or, um, and it was kind of jarring because it would go from something was like, Oh wow, this is actually like an entertaining cartoon. That's, you know, keeping me interested to, Oh, I'm just kind of like looking at a static image that someone's kind of just like shifting around a little bit. I don't know if you picked up on that as much as me, but uh, to me, it was just, it was inconsistent. It was just like, you know, a bunch of different things kind of, uh, stitched together yeah i thought maybe we were going for like the war machine or something i don't know uh, maybe but... although i was also looking like whoever had this job probably was you know they could take way more coffee breaks than the guy that was like hand animating the plane like rocking left and right and you know like the people inside of it like doing active things the other part of the history of this film is you know after the war it was shelved because what's the point anymore right so mm-hmm. but that first um it's almost 30 minutes, isn't it? The uh, history of animation segment uh, was regularly played. Aviation, through... history of aviation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did I say? Animation. 
Oh yeah, well this is animation. Okay, that's why I said okay. Yes, history of aviation is um that was shown on you know the Disneyland show in the fifties, uh, all you know shown on television regularly. Yeah, I, but, I remember seeing that along with you know all the other classic cartoons and Saturday mornings or whatever it was. But the uh, the lecture part, which does have some of the cool animation like the wheel and and all that you were mentioning, uh, yeah, that was pretty much permanently shelved to be honest. Um. Uh, I, I know I was watching it on the the on the front line DVDs that came out like twenty years ago now, but <laughs> okay, I, I so guess on that's YouTube. that's what was so weird about this movie is like let's imagine that we went to the theater and you paid for the ticket and you went and sat down and you watched this thing. The type of person that really loves the initial part of the aviation um, and the cartoon aspect feels like a completely different person that would like that lecture part with the infographics um or at least you it's like in two completely different mind states where it's like i like goofy silly you know cartoons that are going to make me kind of laugh a little bit versus oh wow like i'm watching like a documentary right now and they're just pumping information into me um it's just it's again it's it's weird that they're both in the same movie and it's considered like a cohesive movie that was probably RKO's uh, long answer, where I, I previously <laughs> quoted the short. The, the, no. Yeah, the short one was, yeah, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> um, one weird thing is the how they're like enshrining General Billy Mitchell. I thought that was pretty weird because <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a household name. I mean, everyone still remembers General Patton, but they don't really remember General. I mean, it's Billy. it's a valid, it's a very valid point, though. I mean, I I understand it, and I kind of agree with giving him some credit here because it's because uh, they even I I made a note here because I hadn't heard uh, about him either, but it was like, oh, poor whoever the hell they're talking about. Like everyone ignored him and they ridiculed him. Like they. they they really like boo up this underdog like oh this guy got you know kicked while he was down and no one wanted to listen to him and then he ended up being right all along it was almost like this underdog story that they were pitching but yeah the the quote it was like uh poor general billy mitchell he was ignored and ridiculed you know like that's how the the movie kind of starts out um but my bias here i was in the air force and i went through the the brainwashing and the training and the mind control but um, it was absolutely conveyed on us how um, crucial the air, you know, air force and just sort of like command of airspace in general is the foundation now of everything else. Like you can't have a Navy and you can't have um, an army without having an air force. And in many cases, the air force can like eliminate the need to even bring in either of those other two guys. Like you might not even need ground forces if your air force is good enough. Um, yeah. so, but this is like for, for someone in 1942, the air force didn't even exist. Right. At that point, we just like had some, uh, planes, like we had the army air force, but we didn't have its own branch. And we were seeing how Britain had the Royal air force. Anyway, we'll get into that. Cause it's mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, in the, in the real two of this. Yeah. Um, I, my note, by the way, for that was all general Billy Mitchell wanted was death from above. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Bill. No one wanted to listen to him. They kept ridiculing him. Um, I'll show you all. <laughs> I know what else did I write about the history of aviation? Let's see. Oh, yeah. I, did, I noticed one plane had, you know, like kind of a straight up hippie in it. I think when they were like testing the early planes, I was like, that guy's that guy's a hippie in 1942. <laughs> That's pretty wild. <laughs> he just had the, you know, the, I guess, 1972 George Carlin look or something. <laughs> and and I um I don't know if, if you've ever been to Kitty Hawk before by any chance. 
I'm, I'm going to say no. It seems like it would have, but maybe I haven't. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure I've been there before and uh, I've probably have some Berenstein uh, issues going on or like two memories might be melding together. I didn't look this up uh, before here, but I believe there's an area right around there called Devil's Canyon, which always which had these like weird occult connotations to me. Even growing up, I remember thinking that was like such a weird thing that the origin of airflay and essentially you know like air warfare started in a place called devil's canyon mm -hmm. um which is right by kitty hawk I, i'm pretty sure i might just be making that up and if i am sorry um but <laughs> but i remember the um the wright brothers kind of starting it all out and that was disney makes it look like an absolute death trap every single time they animate anything that has to do with the wright brothers or airplanes based on like that biplane or or so like wright brothers um designs every single time it's animated in this movie it's not something you would want to be anywhere near right it's not like they don't necessarily glorify those early days of aviation if anything they make it look like um you know you were lucky to survive even testing one of them well, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, in modern film, we do that with astronauts when they're showing, especially the early stuff. It's like, yes, these guys are in tin cans strapping themselves to giant explosives, you know? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this kind of had the, the same kind of vibe. I, and I, I thought, think, sorry, go ahead. I did, I did notice that they worded it as in um, man's first modern flight which I thought was actually kind of like forward thinking because they're like, hey, we don't know about what happened in the distant past. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe someone knew about the ancient aliens, right? Yeah. So the ancient I, astronauts. But I did find it interesting the wording was that as opposed to just like the first time man flew. It's like the first time man's flown in modern in the modern era. So they, they didn't want to offend the overlords that they knew about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe, maybe in Comet they would fly around with their minds. I don't I don't know. But well, there is an idea that, you know, using vibration to float the pyramid bricks in the place, which I think is kind of <laughs> cool. My favorite is where they had the plant and could that would soften stone and you would be able to shape the so stone, you know, like concrete for a little while. So have you ever heard that? Yeah, theory? A, a plant as in like a, a a vegetative plant or a plant like a like a depot. No, a plant is in like a vegetative plant, which you would let you know, mash up, turn into like a goo, and you would be able to reshape the stones. I've like, never like, heard that one. No, that one's that one's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, because I'm like, you know, something like that actually sounds somewhat reasonable. And I I guess because I'm nuts, the idea that they knew how to vibrate them in a place also sounds reasonable. So that to me, that's honestly the the one that I give the most credit to. If we're if we're gonna pick from all of the outlandish examples, that one's the one that I gravitate towards is the vibrations, the vibrations, man. Yeah. See, I don't like the alien one. I, I like to think it was, you know, something created here. So <laughs> no, I, I agree. Actually, on we're getting on a tangent here, but I 100 percent agree. Like I tend to like giving credit to ancestors and to like ancient technology that humans developed um, rather than just like defaulting to some external force game, because I really do think that we're capable of a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we should get back to the movie. Uh don't... Yeah, I, uh, I, well, I had a note here, and this felt like a like Disney making a point here, um, because there was a, there was a focus on the government contract. So after uh, the early 1900s, they finally had like a first European flight, and that's when the concept of a plane went from just like a bunch of weirdos flying around in death traps in the sky out of novelty into hey, there actually might be something to this if I can fly 
um, you know, like transcontinental or, or things like this. So uh, as soon as the government realized, hey, there might be something to these planes, the government just put out this contract and they had this whole like a three to five minute animated segment about all of the different companies that submitted their plans for airplanes and how much they cost and what they were made out of. Um, I just thought that was really interesting because they had one example that was like $10 million for a plane. And, you know, this is 1908, I believe um, $10 million. One of them was like uh, four, $450 per pound, <laughs> but it didn't <laughs> specify how many pounds the plane would be. And then ultimately it was the Wright brothers that got one of the three contracts picked and the Wright brothers bid was $25,000 and the government decided to pay them for one airplane at the rate of $25,000. I don't know how specifically accurate that particular number was, but that was the one that they, they showed in the animation. Yeah, no, I just wrote that I would have chosen the uh, $10,000 bid that was on notebook paper. I thought that was like a nice balancing of everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one was on, like, they didn't say the other two that got picked, so maybe that was <laughs> that was one. Maybe they picked the $10 million one, too, and they just don't talk about that because it was a flop. <laughs> Uh, would you have flown one of these things in the in the 1900s? I mean, you didn't need a license or anything, so. <laughs> uh, I feel like if I if I knew the Wright brothers and I saw them doing it a few times and not get hurt, I could have been convinced into doing it. But it wouldn't have been something that I saw and just like gravitated towards uh, naturally. I'm not that much of a thrill seeker. No. What about you? Would you have done this? Um, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, probably along your lines. I don't want to be first, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> um but i did put you know nobody cares about calbert and his <clears throat> 69 short hops anymore <laughs> yeah it, it's funny how quickly like all of these huge advances just get completely forgotten um and and it was it's also it's really interesting to see like how the wright brothers technology and i use that term i guess in very loose terms but the the technology was essentially they had the plane um and then they had the the engine running and then they had a pulley system where they basically just had like a literal rope or a cable essentially that held the plane back on a track so that it had enough time to kind of spin up the horsepower, I guess, and get the propeller going to where they had enough pull. And then they just kind of had a lever that would like release the pin that was like holding this plane back with like a little cable and then it was able to just kind of like take off and I guess take flight for something like 12 seconds was the first big one. But just the the concept of how I guess low tech that is compared to what we've got now is just sometimes it's just mind blowing to consider the short amount of time between, you know, 1908, 1940, you know, 40 years. And then if you want to keep extrapolating that from the 40s into like the mid 60s to going out to the moon, unless, you know depending on what you believe <laughs> but man what what a, a crazy amount of of leaps in technology between essentially 60 years from planes didn't even exist to now we're on the moon i um when i got up this morning i i saw something in the in the in the news for the um near space luxury balloon have you seen this I haven't, but I, I understand what it is just by you describing it. It's yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a space worthy capsule, but you know, it doesn't actually go weightless because it only there's still air where it, where it is. But uh, they got like a bar and stuff on it. I'm like, that's hip. Space balloon looks fun. <laughs> I I worked on a, a project called Spaceport America, which is in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Um, and I believe they have another access point in a place called Truth or Consequences. But as it was originally 
build as kind of like a like a lame Disney World kind of thing, but it would be like where rich people and and I say rich, I think at the minimum it, they were pitching it like two hundred thousand dollars to go to like suborbital kind of space, and, and you would call that like I went to outer space, um, but it was like two hundred thousand dollars minimum a ticket. But the concept was that you can't run a business that only caters the people that spend 200000 So then the other idea around it was that, like, the plebs, the middle class people could go and spend, you know, $60 or $70 on a ticket to go and, like, do little rides and little activities and then watch the rich people fly out into <laughs> outer space and have them come back down and stuff. Um, but it's, it was kind of the same idea of, like you know the the uber wealthy to have some money to burn just go out and get as close to space as you can just because what else are you using your money for you know stocks <laughs> so they're basically building westworld <laughs> <laughs> almost i mean i get the ai is probably going to be there eventually right although i'm still in this idiotic situation where i've seen the 70s movie but not the tv show so but i've heard about the tv show so i you know, got got a few hits from that i guess <laughs> Well, let me know when you go through it. Maybe we can we can do another podcast out of that one. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, is that one of the one that like eats it in the later seasons though, or something? I think I heard that. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. I think it it jumps the shark a little bit in season two. I think what uh, a little tangent here, but this is actually a really interesting uh, note is that uh, Westworld TV show is in a weird example of where the writers were paying attention to the internet too much, and they saw that the internet was kind of solving the like Easter eggs and the riddles that they were kind of setting up in season one in real time. And the writers were trying to get ahead of it by like outsmarting the internet and trying to like subvert expectations. And they, they did that in such a weird way towards the end of season one. And they just like went full force in season two to the point where they were just like constantly trying to like make sure the internet couldn't guess their next move. So it, it turned into like this weird thing where it was like, you're not watching a TV show that someone sat down and wrote, for a full like you know a storyline to get you engrossed in they were just trying to outsmart you the whole time and make you feel like you were dumb which turns out people don't love feeling like they're idiots you know what i mean uh so anyways yeah that it, it kind of jumped the shark for season two season three loss of bearing and then a lot of people like four but season one is is a million percent worth watching season one even if you don't like the rest of them yeah i've heard that one's quite side yeah i guess the first shows that really fell prey to that um Oh, well, let's call it hubris would probably be a like, lost in battle star because I was following both of those and people totally did guess what their plan was for both shows. So both well, did shows, you watch lost as it aired or did you watch it years later? I watched both of them as, as they aired. Okay. Yeah, I mean, lost was groundbreaking, though, because I think it was also one of the very first primetime TV shows in history in American pop culture that showed subtitles and so many different languages and sort of these like vignette style um, shots. Like that wasn't really seen outside of kind of like artsy, you know, things that you wouldn't see on primetime on one of the major networks. Yeah. Cause I, both shows, I, I, they had their finales within about a month of each other. Um, and, and I remember at the time, like in both were, you know, underwhelming in different ways and, and good in different ways too. I'm not going to, poop on either of those shows too much in the end but at the time i was like well i guess i guess lost stuck the landing better and you know 12 years later i'm like no battle star easily aged better <laughs> was, that, was that a pun that lost stuck the landing better <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> what well, didn't in the end did it <laughs> <laughs> no it didn't <laughs> but i've i've rewatched Battlestar like twice since it was on air i have not had the um 
the the attention span to do Lost again. So, <laughs> got it on my shelf. I can do it when I want. But uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> one age better than the other. Um, anything else on the the history of aviation segment you want to hit on before? Uh, we no, move I, into I, the... I kind of separated my notes into the reels because there was three. At least the video that I watched, they had like three different reels with like little intermissions between. Did yours have that too, or no? Uh no, all I got was the Leonard Martin intro that looked like it was filmed on tissue paper. Okay. It was like <laughs> yeah. it was like it was like '90s video. <laughs> so so mine was actually um categorized military footage, and it was labeled you know three four two USAF three eight one zero five, and then it was real one, real two, real three, where it, it literally like would just stop in the middle of an animation and it would spin up a new real two or something. So it was like a military archive dump, I guess somewhere. Yeah, I mean, which was like interesting. I, like I said, I think this making this movie seem seem to have been well. At least Disney ran with the ball. If someone else told him to do it, he he was the guy. He he made this kind of his personal project a little more than the other movies. So, um, but I could see like yeah, let's show it to the troops and stuff. Uh, so that I mean, that was all my notes. Um, that it was just interesting that between up until 1914, essentially before right before World War One, that planes were truly just seen as like a novelty. Like there was no practical purpose for it it was just like what are those idiots freaking doing out there on that cliff like you know i i, I love when they do start showing air warfare though where the guy's just in the back like throwing bombs out you know with his hand i was like yeah i guess you would do that at first <laughs> yeah I, and that's that was so cool too because it's like it's a cartoon and this is done in that cartoony style with like you know uh emphasized kind of like loose um uh positions it wasn't necessarily like rotoscoped at this point later on you get some like rotoscoping but this one was like true character animation you know cartoon style um but it was like you know pulling out a gun and just shooting at another guy in a plane and then you know pulling out like grenades and just dropping them out of the sky but sure enough that's exactly how all of that started uh that was i thought that was kind of cool because i guess i'd never really uh considered that concept as much that at some point there was literally just two dudes flying planes around each other like shooting at each other with pistols or, or rifles or something and they yeah. mentioned shotguns i don't know if the, i don't know how accurate all that was but they mentioned that they used to just shoot shotguns out in the air as they were driving or flying uh, yeah i i'd hate to be the guy that was the guy that figured out you can't shoot your machine gun through um non <laughs> non technologically enhanced propellers <laughs> um it's a cool it invention it was a really and, and it mentioned something that i guess by 1940 they were able to shoot like 9000 rounds a minute it might have been even more than that i thought that was pretty impressive though yeah 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 horrible but impressive <laughs> impressively horrible <laughs> um oh no i was just like i'd, I'd throw fish from my airplane and then i'd be a fisher so yeah <laughs> i was thinking of the guy from the muppets you know with a like throw the fish around <laughs> um yeah and then as we move into the the present of 1942 that's where again i'm like is it, i guess severski some kind of a war criminal here i don't know <laughs> there, there was a lot about um like they're getting this book author to give this basically a lecture as you said nate um the director oh god he what else did he do i don't remember but they they made sure to get like a serious director on this 
to make it more interesting. If you notice, he's moving around a lot. There's a lot of, you know, moving shots. So they not... try. It didn't work for me, but I, I could see that they were trying. They were definitely trying. He, yeah. he, like he at one point, he's like moving slides around and like, oh, let's walk over here. And then he like goes in front of like a, a big globe. And then he's like pointing at stuff on the globe. And then he like walks a little bit further and something's projecting behind him. So like, yeah, they, they put more care into it. So it wasn't just a dude in front of a screen uh, yelling at you. Yeah, again, you know, and this this is a case where the studio suits at RK may have not been wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but that's I mean, this was not you know, this tries its hardest to be an entertaining film, but yeah, it's clearly not it's a it's an educational film, right? So <laughs> or a or a mind manipulation film if you want to go propaganda film if you want to take that route. So or oh, I mean yeah, three. I mean I think without question it's a propaganda film in, yeah. in some ways. Although th- this probably is heavier on like really interesting strategy like they're they're literally showing you like here's the proposed strategies and how they need to work and the, and i guess the ultimate we didn't really cover when we first started talking about like what was the ultimate purpose of the film and it's obviously to just sell whoever's watching it on a few things one is that we need our own air force the the united states needs its own air force that's one of the big ones and the other one was like and get ready for what that means which essentially they mentioned was like a hundred million tons of raw materials like every week or something. Like it was some insane amount, but it was basically like everyone get ready to, you know, give up all of your luxury goods and your car manufacturing and just anything that you're used to and just put it all towards this war machine so that we can amass the the largest arsenal of the most, you know, variety of different weapons, uh, specifically air, but, you know, everything. Um, that was like the movie was selling the general public essentially on like get ready to you know stop seeing metal everywhere because metal's all going to be turning into these airplanes. Yeah, that was another effective animation where you're seeing the uh, the pulsing industrial heart of the United States, which is quite dystopian looking to the modern eye. You know, pumping out its arteries of bottles, pumping out shipping. warships. Yeah. <laughs> And I thought it was the cool. I mean, uh, maybe intentional, but they they had literal ships and bottles coming out, and they were trying to show that the the ports were the bottlenecks of everything. So it was a very literal image of like a ship getting like squeezed out through a small little bottleneck, um, kind of slowing everything down. But I just thought that was cool. You know, bottleneck is literal, but then also a, a ship in a bottle. Uh, like what a cool sort of like compound symbol that was. But yeah, that does make you. I mean, you know, like. How many people really think about how many people outside of military strategy and planning actually think about, you know, maintaining supply lines, you know, because to someone that's sitting around their, their room like I am now, I just move that over there, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, you say you say that now. I mean, in 1942, probably almost nobody. Right. Except for like serial killers and military generals. But now in you know 2022 anyone that likes playing sim uh you know or civilization or any kind of real-time strategy game like i think i made a note here like how cool would it be to have a disney animated sort of like real-time um sim like war sim game you know like cuphead meets civilization (laughs) (laughs) i'm 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 sitting here wondering if something like that even exists i mean yeah i I still haven't wrapped my head around kingdom hearts so (laughs) I have a friend that just started doing Kingdom Hearts, which is just a bizarre mixture of kind of, if you don't know, it's just the anime. And no, no, I, I actually loved it. I, I okay. played the first one when it came out and I fell in love with it. Okay. I, I'm, I'm 
a weirdo where I only played like the DS one. So that's and it was like the, the weird broken version of the original game, I think. <laughs> well, the original one is very hard to go back and revisit now. It's just things have come such a long way in terms of game design since that one came out. But at the at the time when it came out, you know, combining the the IP of Disney and Final Fantasy was just, you know, it was like they couldn't have come out with like such a more unpredictable yet well-working sort of uh, synergy, I think. Right, right. Um, getting, getting back to the, the lecture, that sounds so, like, so buzzkilly. Let's get back to the lecture. <laughs> it, it was, though. It was absolutely a lecture. The dude even had, like, a pointing stick and was, like, pointing on things and, again, like, walking over to a globe. Like, I felt like it was a sort of a bore. Again, like, you know, I went through – um, military training in the air force and i've been through like the actual <laughs> lectures of some dude describing military strategy and i just remember thinking man i wish that all of those lectures i had been in at least came with like some disney animation to go behind it and again this is like 2001 so they obviously had the footage and the the know-how to make some good animation but no we just got really really boring stuff oh here, here's my note the director may have helped him sound good but he still sounds like a cold-blooded murderer <laughs> <laughs> and then i liked um it's it's sometime when he's saying like particularly like kind of cold-blooded stuff and they have like a a picture of a lady in the background, I guess, to gain some subconscious support for him as he's talking about, you know, offing lots of people. <laughs> <laughs> There's this, I don't know if you notice this, he's, he's saying something just over his left shoulder, like a smiling black and white photo of his, his wife or daughter or something. <laughs> I know, I, I absolutely love just like how casual he would mention when one of the exact quotes, or I, this is a little bit paraphrased, but he mentions um, as he's going through this and he just casually says, and, you know, we must produce the most amount of weapons of a vast variety. And it was just all about and like and then showing um, there was an example where they blow up a dam and they're trying to take out the the power grid for either Germany or Japan or whoever they're you know describing about attacking. And you see this water flood out across the city. And I'm just thinking, like, that's not very precise. You know what I mean? Like, that's pretty much anyone at all that lived in that downtown is now underwater immediately. But they're not even talking about that. They're just talking about knocking out the power to the rest of the country. So it, it, there was a very weird juxtaposition of like, wait a minute, like five minutes ago, I was literally watching a cartoon dude like, you know, shooting like a pistol out of a, a plane, which I guess also was a little bit dark, but it was cartoony. And now we're talking about drowning an entire, you know, city of people here. Yeah, through like have, legit military tactics they, they have no superman to save them in that case but yeah they just kind of pan away from that rushing water so let's let's see what's going on with the power <laughs> <laughs> um oh yeah i thought some of the battle footage when they were showing dunkirk um it started making me thinking a little bit of speaking of superman some of the fleischer animation for superman i guess i guess Disney had poached a few of those guys by this point, so. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned that. I can totally see uh, some of that style, and that might be part of that juxtaposition I was mentioning before of like two completely different animation styles. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I was wondering if the modern equivalent of this movie in general might be like you know victory through through cyber war or something. You know, I mean, someone showing how routers work and you know IPs or something and and doing it like like it sounds dry as hell which i guess this movie is too but at least there's you know some compelling visuals to help you understand it so <laughs> <laughs> i would i would love to see a version of this movie 
where they replay the strategy of what actually happened, not what they were kind of proposing to have happened. Well, you could say that we kind of cheated. <laughs> you know, How so? Because oh, yeah. this movie you know, d- does not assume that we will be having you know dropping nukes on anyone in a few years yeah no actually i've I've got some notes on that that we'll bring up uh actually (laughs) you know i guess we're we're getting there right now (laughs) yeah sure you want to do that because yeah i was Uh, like well so so a couple of my notes because again i'm wearing like the reels so like in in reel two which is right before we actually talk about um how we were going to go after japan and germany and everything but in real in real two my notes were um some interesting takeaways was first of all that Airfare was unique in a few different ways, uh, air warfare, rather. Um, first, that once the government started investing in all of these planes, those planes could also double during peacetime and be used to deliver mail, to deliver supplies. Um, and it's it's pretty much up until that point was the only example of this massive investment that the government made in vehicles that had any sort of use during peacetime, like ships, maybe a little bit. Um, tanks definitely didn't really have any sort of use during peacetime, right? Like they just kind of sit there and collect dust and require maintenance. But planes have a, like almost, you know, just as much, maybe even more use in peacetime for commercial and just kind of infrastructure reasons. So that was interesting. And then also just to like overly stress this again, this was beaten to my head in military training, but how absolutely unique it is that the invention of the plane um especially for military purposes just completely invalidated the navy and the army ground forces in in a big way i mean it's not like you know having a navy and army uh land forces like don't matter anymore but like a plane just flies right over them you know what i mean like they're no longer blockers for you to get into a country and you no longer have to rely on the navy to create blockades and kind of starve resources out of a country you just send a plane over there and drop a bomb and and like you're in and out um as we kind of see as the ultimate evolution of all of this but but it's such a uh in important thing to not undersell how absolutely revolutionary that concept is of like all of a sudden this plane just changed warfare forever like even to this day I believe like I guess you can make an argument now for like information warfare and cyber warfare, but really it's whoever has the best airfare and who can control the airspace that kind of wins wars now, you know? Yeah, because yeah, when I was growing up, my dad was you know making ship models of various kinds. And as a kid, I was like, why don't they make battleships anymore? They look so cool and they're fun to build models of. Well, here's why. <laughs> well, and and the biggest battleships are really just like aircraft carriers just holding planes to get them in better position for, you know, the, the air control. So <laughs> what exactly is the point of a destroyer? Because we still have plenty of those. Well, I mean, really, this movie makes a really good point here in that the the point is that if everyone has equal technology, if we've got the same air technology and Navy technology and sort of like infantry, then it just becomes a battle of like who has the most of the stuff. You know what I mean? Like if, if if me and you are at war and we can both produce the exact same type of ship, then it's just like if I can make mine bigger with more weapons on them and make more of them, then I just kind of win in a general strategic aspect of, you know, uh, might versus might. So that's kind of the large aspect of like, why do we still keep producing this? It's just because you don't want to fall behind and like another country now has more than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure where real two ends and real three starts, but I did. There was about a minute where I was like, 
someone was like giggling writing the script or something because I just started writing verbatim things he was saying through about minute, which I got rim job with machines steel against steel with enough force. <laughs> about yeah, we're, we're in real three here. Yeah, we're in real okay. three now. <laughs> I was like, did he? I didn't that kind of sound a little like that in 1942 as well. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe know. at least not to these military guys. I don't think that they were that they weren't making jokes uh, when they made this. Maybe <laughs> the animators or the the scriptwriter was and was like, let's see what we can get this guy to say. Let's get him to say rim job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like Ron Burgundy or something. I don't know. <laughs> but that but, uh, that was that quote was actually from I think the my favorite part of the movie which is weird because it was just like an infographic but again it was it was specifically showing how the difference was that the allies essentially had to rely on these exterior external forces and these long you know supply routes that had to like meander around countries and kind of like avoid things and just the vast amount of resources it took and how much risk like for example to get tanks over to germany or even to japan you would have had to send them all on a big ship and the German U-boats could just sit with one direct hit. They could sink an entire ship. And if that ship had tanks on it, now you just lost tanks and a ship and the people and all the time that it took to get it that far and to manufacture it. And the list goes on. Um, so that was, it was interesting to kind of uh, to see the aspect of the German force. And then they described the Axis as being all internal um, they didn't have to go outside the country and they they had very quick supply lines where if um, like the exact part you're mentioning where it's like, you know, steel on steel and metal on metal. And it was showing these like arrows kind of like hammering towards the inside of the, the German war machine, which was the center of this wheel with the spokes. Um, and every time like one of these big arrows, which kind of represented, I guess, like ground support, you know, ground forces trying to attack Germany. It would just show how Germany could just immediately respond by ramping up production and sending it to wherever they were being attacked. Um, anyway, that that was such a uh, an impressive infographic because, again, they were conveying a very complicated aspect in such a, an easy, like, I feel like a, a child could kind of be watching it and understand at least what the visuals were portraying. I guess this movie in, in the end is kind of like indirect lobbying. <laughs> like you don't go into the senator's office. You're just, yeah, you make this film. I mean, you can make a very strong argument because the CIA gets, uh, gets the play consultant and all sorts of military government related movies. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, so, I mean, how is that any different as trying to garner uh, favor with the public, you know, Hollywood audience uh, essentially of like, training you on um you know training on you and like what to expect to see but also gauging public reaction just like a product goes to market and they have a test audience here's a good way that you know the cia or the war machine can kind of like get a test audience going like oh you guys like the american sniper okay <laughs> duly noted you know what i mean yeah yeah here's maverick for you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The Top Gun 2 comes out. Bam, let's see what kind of uh, uh, general reception we get. Oh, you guys love it? All right, we're going to war. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's taking a little lesson in the past. Like, you know, they well, two years ago, it, it, it seemed like the plot really was like, oh, we're going to war with Iran now. And everyone was like, uh, no, <laughs> the drone people, you know. So it didn't. Yeah, that one didn't pass the the public relations test, you know. Right, right, right. 
um, Ukraine still up for grabs. So I well, literally and in, in, in public relations, because it's not what's not really clear what's going on. Then we're just getting the news. So what's going on? Don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's see. Oh, yeah. Air command. We get the air. Oh. Sorry, I was looking. I skipped a few things there. Well, I had a I had a question that I, I wanted to pose to you, and I guess yeah. anyone listening, just as a, as like a, a thought experiment. But they're mentioning this aspect of how America is going to have to like tighten their belts and get used to um, this loss of things that you're used to, so that all these resources can go to the war machine. Now, imagine in 2022, the government comes out and they're like, "All right, everyone, you know." tighten your belts because we're going to need all of the real all the mic you know all the micro trips all the metal all the plastics the rubber just everything needs to all go to the war machine um it it feels like like a completely different society that would accept that now like that that same society would be like you know what that's right i'll do my part you know i'll, I'll forgo i'll just eat you know rice and kind of go to like a ration system you know whether it's quasi i feel like it would be um, such a harder sell today with all the modern luxuries and and sort of you know people set in ways it would it would not be received the same yeah yeah for sure i mean i don't think i've ever had anything rationed otherwise you know you can't buy more than five you know or something like that but that's usually a sale right that's not rationing yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're just we're not used to that sort of thing but uh yeah, it's just weird. It's, oh, the bomb's forever growing in size. I'm like, that's that's not a good thing. Dr. Seuss told us that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just he gets so excited about that sort of thing. It's like, no, that that's a not good. That's what we want to avoid. But it's a, I don't know. I guess in the middle of World War II, it sounds okay, does it? I don't know. Yeah, well, they, they mentioned that we started with like um, bombs that were being, you know, bombs and grenades that were literally being dropped by a person that were around 25 pounds at their biggest to in you know 1942 when they were airing this mentioning like 10 ton 10 plus ton bombs and again in retrospect knowing that they had been you know the manhattan project and had been developing the atomic bomb like this 10 ton bombs they were talking about being like the latest and greatest that had nothing at all on the reality yeah although you look at something like dresden and the conventional bombs did quite well uh creating havoc and destruction so just oh yeah, absolutely. It wasn't, it wasn't the same game. It, it was not the same as the ten the ten ton bomb that they were talking about in this movie, though. Is what I was getting at. Oh uh, yeah, um, I did. I thought the map at the end was quite weird looking. They had a uh, like Europe and Russia at the top, and the Arctic was kind of not quite in the center. And I think I think they were trying to show supply lines, but I was just like, that's a bizarre map. <laughs> Yeah, and they were trying to emphasize in the point on how hard it was to get around certain areas and how to traverse uh, the different countries, depending on if it was wartime or peacetime. Because in, there were, there was a, a good example of like during peacetime to get from Alaska to like Australia or something. I'm probably butchering some of that, but like to get that from Alaska to Australia, it was like 4,000 miles or 6,000 miles. But during a time of war it was like double that because of how you had to kind of like navigate around enemy territory and that this aspect you could extrapolate to like anywhere you wanted to get in the world all of a sudden would take you two to three times as long to get there just because you have to like, you know, tread around dangerous areas again. 
I thought they did do a pretty good job of showing, though, um, you know, why the Arctic is kind of important. Because we've had, I think it's the past 10 years, Russia's been, like, really getting serious about their Arctic bases, and no one's been paying that much attention. Oh, that's because it's the entrance to Hollow Earth, man. You got to you gotta protect the entrance to Hollow Earth. Oh, yeah, yeah, that. Because, um, no, Godzilla vs. Kong put it in the, in the Antarctic, didn't they? Well, they were just trying to throw you off. <laughs> well, that's just, like, the, the you know, the, the exit off the north ramp and they exit off the south ramp that's all that is <laughs> all, all the admiral bird stuff he the thing with him is it's confusing because he had to run in the north and the south so it's sometimes you gotta get those two stories straight and then work out what actually happened with those two stories as well <laughs> that's a very popular topic in the conspiracy world for sure oh yeah i did a uh high jump uh, operation high jump episode about uh, about a year ago so yeah it's like yeah i want to talk about that but what an awesome that's one of my favorite topics yeah yeah of course that's a little after this vintage i guess but uh yeah because you mentioned paperclip uh when we were getting this one ready oh, oh yeah, yeah how, how crazy it is that we haven't brought that up yet that's like that's well, the core aspect of this well, i was about to say we haven't brought it up yet because it hadn't quite happened yet when this came out uh well yeah good point but i guess i don't know how other how many other disney movies that we're going to talk about that deal with uh world war ii and and nazi warfare and disney specifically because um uniquely operation paperclip involved grabbing these nazi scientists essentially after the war was over as it was becoming over we didn't want anyone else to get a hold of the nazi scientists so we wanted to get them for ourselves before russia got them or anyone else um, so we bring them all over here and then to help sort of sell the concept that we now have literal Nazi, you know, party members, high ranking military Nazis now in the United States claiming government benefits, living in your neighborhood. Um, part of that was having Disney, you know, sort of sell them. You got Werner von Braun on a bunch of Disney um, series and I forgot the Hein Heinz Haber, I believe was the other one. Um, they both almost became sort of household names uh for children watching how we were going to start going to the moon and that very much in my mind at least was very much part of operation paperclip you know it wasn't just get them over here it was also and make sure that we kind of like you know revamp their image a little bit give them a little nice little makeover oh now walt disney's over here oh if he's friends with walt then you know they, these are good guys don't <laughs> mind the 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 death gold skull you know um honor that he was given by hitler directly you know no he's a good guy now <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I, we should probably hit one of those 50 stones i was trying to figure out the name because i i know it's not your friend the atom but one of the other ones but yeah the Tomorrowland disc i know it's on there but they do not print the titles of the actual uh contents on the discs so <laughs> but yeah because yeah, yeah making verna verna von braun and disney you know being your your kindly you know uh old uncles right so Uncle Watt and Werner telling you to go to space. <laughs> and, and it's and it is kind of surreal again because I was watching the Epcot video, seeing how Walt was like trying to make this utopian society that had no retirees or homeless people or like essentially sick, but like you know, if if there was anything wrong with you, you were not allowed to live in this literal bubble of a city. And then also um this like warfare promotion, and then also considering how he literally resold the public on Werner von Braun and a whole bunch of other Operation Paperclip Nazis that came here. What an interesting thing, because again, he was like representative of this like 
wholesome family friendly like it's all just like fairy tales and and happy thoughts but really man this guy was you know behind um the greatest war machine and in all of history or modern history at least well 1942 is um right after disney had come off of you know having several years of uh labor troubles and legal problems right so like when Snow White came out, it was, you know, they're working too hard, which is why they had the labor disputes. But it was the atmosphere was still a little more, I guess, family, family like at the studio, whereas by this point, it had grown a lot. They'd had all the labor issues. You know, Watt probably had lost a fair amount. <laughs> Walt's of just like, humor. kill them all. Kill well, them he, all. <laughs> well, he used to dress pretty quirky. And uh, about this time is when we just get, you know, Watt in gray suits all the time. So, um, you know, all the photos are just him surrounded by yes men that all look like super involved in whatever he's doing, holding up a map or like pointing at something. He's got like 12 people that are like, yeah, Walt, that's interesting. Or like, yeah, Walt, what a great idea. Because uh, there, there's photos from the creation of Disneyland where I guess he was in a good mood and kind of reverted back to his old style, like temporarily of wearing kind of like absurdist clothing. But yeah, yeah, generally from 1942 on, it's like, OK, I'm going to be businessman Watt and on TV, Uncle Watt, but you know, with the, the look of business. Yeah, don't mind Uncle Walt. He's just over here starting a war. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> We're telling you how to do the war. Yeah, because they, they show they show several strategies that won't work. One of them being the island hopping strategy, which is pretty much what they went with until you know mm -hmm. the until the the a bomb. So, but yeah, we do have what all those you know ridiculously bloody battles from the island hopping. So I guess he was not wrong that that was not really a great approach. Because <laughs> what we do, it was, it, it was interesting showing the the strategies there because it's almost like. Is Walt Disney telling me what the strategy is, or was this the uh, like all military strategy being portrayed out into the public? And how much of this, like how how much of that infographic part was Walt involved in, or did he just hand the reins to the animation department over to like a general somewhere? I would assume that Severski described it in his book, and they were just trying. So then there, you know, you're taking some liberty simply by animating it, but. <clears throat> I guess the stamp of approvals on the film since he's in it giving a lecture. <laughs> it would have been so much cooler if it was like Uncle Walt describing these military strategies. And here's how we're going to hit the jobs from this angle. And, you know, well, I, I guess even he had enough, um, enough to realize that he was probably the wrong man to be doing this. <laughs> well, folks, you know, we're going <laughs> to. <it> worked. <laughs> it might have made it more entertaining to watch. But yeah, I guess I can understand what the decision there. Yeah, it would have been more entertaining that way. But uh, of course, this, again, this guy was not a speaker. They were trying to direct the hell out of him to make it like mildly watchable. Um, and, and I have a, a note here, too, that, uh, you know, um, Illuminati confirmed they showed the Freemasonic compass right in the middle of Japan and like showing the uh, um, it was it was basically like a radius of either how we could get to them or. Um, the amount of protection that they had, but it straight up just had like a, a compass turning around like in a little circle. I thought that was interesting. I think that actually did catch my eye. Yeah. Well, I guess it was supposed to catch your eye. There were a couple images near the end that struck me as weird, other than, than the map. Um, they have that totem pole on screen for like five seconds as the planes fly off. 
yeah i noticed that too because i because i was expecting that like german uh byzantine style eagle almost but it was like a totem for some reason i didn't understand that and then they had because that was that was that from germany or was that from like alaska maybe or like the pacific islands i was thinking pacific northwest like i felt like they're in my mind they're like flying out of seattle or something uh well it would have been well yeah i I don't know it's a good it's a good point because because in this movie they do obviously do not talk about the atomic bomb um they're talking about how they might leverage a uh an attack on japan from um perhaps the pacific islands or even from like alaska was one of the examples but the way that we actually did it was from the northern mariana islands um and that's where the 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 actual plane that was carrying the atomic bomb left from which right. ironically i think the main island there is called pagan which i just thought was an interesting little side note <laughs> um and then they have you mentioned the the eagle or whatever they have the eagle versus the octopus and i was like that that has some stuff i mean you know octopus and a serpent are different but it made me think of the the whole eagle versus serpent uh vibe <laughs> Well, and and the octopus of like global control and, you know, many, many government, specifically um, military industrial complex government conspiracy theories tend to lean towards this octopus uh, symbolism. Yeah. And I guess in this case, they're calling the the axis, the octopus, which now I now we would call people like Disney more like, you know, the industrialists as (laughs) having a few more tentacles, I guess. I don't know. But yeah. Too much extraterrestrial DNA. That's the problem with the octopus. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I, I looked at this. I went on a little bit of a tangent, but I was interested again because they didn't go into the atomic bomb. Um, but I, I I was on a tangent on like where did the actual plane set off from, and you know what was the plane's name and everything. And it was called uh, the plane was called the Enola Gay, which was a B twenty nine bomber, and the <laughs> it was called the Enola Gay because the pilot named it after his mom so the bombs that you know the plane that dropped these atomic bombs um hiroshima nagasaki was in a plane named after the pilot's mother anola gay tibbets and he was quoted as describing this and he said my thoughts turned at this point to my courageous red-haired mother whose quiet confidence had been a source of strength to me beyond or since boyhood and career to become a military pilot and at a time when uh dad had thought i had lost my marbles she taken me aside and said you know it'll be all right son so this like experience had him name the plane after his mom which then basically ended uh at least our fight with japan at that point i mean we dropped the atomic bomb and and i was gonna ask you i mean you live in japan so like what is the actual like history there like and you go to school and and children learn about you know hiroshima and nagasaki like what is the general reaction and how is there not just immediate disdain towards the united states based on that one event right um why not before i get to i will answer that of course but um i was also thinking of armageddon where the guy at the beginning is like you know name the planet killing asteroid after my wife <laughs> yeah, <that's a> good <laughs> so that that was the first thing that yeah, came maybe to maybe mind. this was like more of a like i guess i read the quote as like he named it after his mom out of like good intentions but maybe this was like my fiery red-headed you know bitch of a mom <laughs> right <laughs> um in japan like of course i didn't go to school in japan but um you know the, you'll regularly see the hiroshima um peace dome as sort of that that's 
well, big tourist attraction. Um, so I do teach junior high classes and we have the junior high textbooks on hand. And uh, one of the one of the essays is the story of uh, Sadako, which is some girl that was on the outskirts of uh, one of the explosions and, uh, you know, dies horribly of, of cancer like 10 years later. So but that that's the point that um, the, the focus, I guess, isn't so much on the I mean, you know, people that died instantly, that's horrible. But the textbook was really focusing on those those lingering effects, I guess. But it didn't I, I don't even know if it mentioned. Sorry, my mic went out there. I don't even think it mentioned America. I just think I was there for the bomb. It went off. Uh, you know, she got irradiated, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, just I mean, out of my own ignorance, but it's watching this movie it was like every once in a while i had this thought of like oh yeah japan was kind of the enemy during world war ii like that's it's so easy to forget and even like pearl harbor within the context but it, it doesn't it's again this is my own ignorance maybe um this might be unique to me but when world war ii comes up i think germany nazis hitler very rarely does my mind immediately go to like oh yeah japan and pearl harbor um, it's it's almost like uh, I don't know, like maybe just because Japan was like a smaller aspect of it, but uh, uh, I don't know that it just kept it just kept grabbing by surprise in this movie of like, oh yeah, that's right, Japan was part of this, and I guess we're on good, you know, everyone's on good relations now, Japan, Germany, and the United States. Um, ironically, more so than China and Russia, which are kind of being pitched as like america's we need sort of allies them. in this act. it's kind of it's so weird it's i don't know it's it's a it's a very abstract um sort of just like concept to wrap your head around um the other things that happened you know at the end of the war was um the emperor came out and made a speech and people had never heard his voice before you know sort of like Did he sound you know, like this <laughs> yeah he's, yes he, he was a mouse um but yeah <laughs> you know he made a speech and was like yeah kind kind of separating himself from the from the generals right because he did stay emperor for another 20 30 years something like that so um yeah they they didn't have a magna carta <laughs> right right well we still have emperors um uh, the big controversy a few years ago is the emperor just wanted to quit he didn't die <laughs> is there is there a version of magna carta there where essentially magna carta just said like the king and the court were not above the law and that they were subject to the same laws they impose on everyone else does that exist within emperors as well um the only thing that really happened this was the point of him speaking to a japanese people directly is the emperor is not a god <laughs> but the, the emperors of japan have not actually wielded power for probably like a thousand years <laughs> like, a, like a buckingham palace kind of situation but it's been doing that for like a thousand years that's one of the reasons it's probably the longest running you know um line of I mean, they probably fudged it somewhere and just didn't tell us. But, you know, they, the, <laughs> the, the, the line that they, they say it's the, the family line's been unbroken for like, you know, a millennia and a half or something. Right. Well, but, you would say that. Right. Right. <laughs> well, I know. You know, I'm, you're not going to be they, like, you know, been in business since 1987. Like, it doesn't have the same ring to it. Right. But I'm like, yeah, they, they might, you know, might have tweaked that line somewhere and, and we just don't know about it. But yeah, <laughs> it, it's been almost a thousand years since the, the emperor really had any real power but the so you know the war was the generals and and there's some people in the government just like let's you know war hawks like literally right and um once so they were of course kind of 
taken out or at the end of the war or whatever. But uh, the emperor remained and uh, MacArthur was in charge of Japan for a while. And the Japanese seemed to really like him. So maybe that's where relations improved. Um, I'm still pissed at MacArthur because he made he made weed illegal in Japan and it still is. But <laughs> you get in a drugstore before that. <laughs> Really single handedly, he just decided that like screw these guys and their weed, these yeah, hippies. That's right, because they, you know, <laughs> the, the late there's like ten years after reefer madness, right? So, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's that's. But anyway, in general, I guess the Japanese were kind of happy with MacArthur's um administration for about five years. I think it took five years before uh, they they let the Japanese sort of like have their own proper, you know, be autonomous again. The same thing with Germany, right? Well, yeah, least- it's. It's, it's interesting what happens like after a huge nation loses a war it's like uh, like on a on a global scale um the, the equivalent of like you know two friends getting into like a big fight in like a big popular party in front of everybody and, like one of them has to you know like has to like make their way back to the bathroom and clean up and then like see, be seen at school and work the next day and kind of like live that off um, and again, I guess this is another example where uh, Japan and Germany kind of differ to where like Germany um, is still sort of the I don't I want to say butt of a joke, but I don't have a better phrase. I'm saying this, but like they still are seen as like uh, or even their media, right? Like they're not allowed to show a lot of that old kind of Nazi symbolism almost as part of law. I think like I, I know as certain games and books can't be published in the, the country of Germany if it's got a swastika in it unless it's in very specific context so like that wound is obviously still very open and you know um like very sensitive versus i don't think uh america has maybe strayed away from developing nuclear arsenal you know what i mean like like the the outcome of that if anything kind of reconfirmed their war machine decision that bigger and better and and vast variety is what you want to win wars so they they walked away from that learning a very scary lesson i think um the the other thing is uh when japan did start become autonomous again they had their their pacifist constitution which we still have today but they've been you know trying like hell to change it for the past 10 years (laughs) is that so is that just like complete not just non-interventionist but like anti-war period yeah japan doesn't have a military of the sdf the self-defense force meaning it's only meant to defend self but um yeah like a few years ago they they pulled some strings where they could actually like engage a little bit a few troops not many japanese troops but i think a few actually engaged in the middle east and they have been trying to change the constitution, which uh, most Japanese are not really for. They, you know, they like having a constitution that says we don't fight people. But and and that's where America has also been important because America has been the shield, right? That's they have the military, the somewhat controversial military bases in Okinawa, <laughs> and um, you know, that we have like a defense treaty with America, so we're kind of. Re- that was why Trump was like, "You guys need to pay us more." Yeah, we're I was going to say that <laughs> they need to pay. They need to pay. <laughs> but yeah, Japan is relying on America's defense shield. But I guess they're uh, to be some... to be fair. I think strategically, there's way more advantage um, for you know for America or for anyone to have bases in Japan because of where it's located and kind of isolated versus some of the other places that 
they need to pay. I think a lot of that was like European NATO and, you know, sort of areas where they, they, uh, the strategy of having America, um, maybe not be as strong as right there in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, hopefully that gives you a nice rundown of the uh, the situation in Japan. But yeah, they got. They, I guess they got over getting bombed. I guess they kind of felt like it was kind of their fault for 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 being at war. <laughs> yeah, kind of. The, and the... and uh, and I don't even want to unwrap this whole other onion of a conspiracy conspiracy theory of Pearl Harbor and that uh, <laughs> the very there's. A very popular theory that I could be easily sold on uh, in the right context and maybe after a drink or so, but that Pearl Harbor was absolutely allowed to happen and that it could have been easily prevented, therefore making it so that um, this atomic reaction to, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki might have never happened if they could have just easily prevented Pearl Harbor because Japan would not have been seen as such a strong aggressor but once that happened it allowed us to escalate on our side and kind of deliver that final like oh shit they're not you know oh oh, they're not messing around anymore well i think i I don't even think it's a conspiracy theory anymore that roosevelt definitely knew like a few days prior uh did he know like a few months prior i guess that would be because that's but that would suggest a lot or if there was a literal stand down order to you know like the information was out there but like it was like let them bomb so that we finally have a reason to get into this you know war because that that was essentially what transitioned us from being non-interventionalist into like okay we're in this now rolling up our sleeves yeah yeah so uh, yeah, I, th- I think at least a little bit of knowing beforehand is generally considered to be like you know, like legit history now. But yeah, you could there's definitely you could you could look J- deeper. Japan into got Canada played or... by somebody, right? Or maybe both, because because they essentially were acting on behalf of um, the Axis um, by even doing the the bombing. But we kind of like left the door open and like knew there you know it's like the 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 redneck with the the itchy trigger finger that kind of like wants the neighbor to wander in and like break into their house in the middle of the night because now they've got a reason to like use that nice shiny shotgun that they've been dreaming about you know shooting for so long well keep in mind you know japan had been completely closed for what uh, almost 200 years when the american navy rolled in and said no you can't do that anymore you need so you need to join the modern world which japan maybe did too good a job of um because uh in around 1905 or so they went and trounced the russian navy in the sino japanese war which is something they don't really teach in american history class i guess because there weren't many americans around but (laughs) there was a uh an nhk national there's no world that exists outside of america what are you talking about yeah it was funny they had a um a nhk evening drama about that war about five six years ago it was just jarring because they would show the british and american military consultants and then they come in and start speaking english so you know when you're watching a japanese show that's kind of jarring (laughs) (laughs) and then the accents were usually like not quite right because they don't know (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of funny (laughs) yeah so it's like the british guy sounds vaguely american the american sounds british it's like "Eh, they mixed that up didn't they Yeah, but, they uh, all sound and look the same. <laughs> well, yeah, they sound. I mean, it's like how we would have trouble hearing accent, different accents in like a different language. You know, it took me a few years before I could even like East and West Japan. There's definitely kind of a different accent, but I couldn't hear that for a few years. You know, <laughs> basically, the yeah, very, were... that's a good 
point, especially like you get to like Midwestern US where like there's an Ohio accent and a Michigan accent and a Virginian accent, but they all they would all sound identical if you were coming from like Europe where, you know, no one sounded like any of those things. Yeah. The the the, the thing that helps with the West, uh, the, the Kansai accent is just they sound more, like way happier. <laughs> <laughs> like they just sound they always sound like they're joking, whereas people in East Japan that tend to sound a little more like um you know, monotone. <laughs> but, Which one is the the car factory accent? Oh, probably the Kansai one. If you're selling a car, you want the happy one, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, do you have any more notes on on your thing? I've got to the end of mine, so. <laughs> um. No, I I thought that was interesting too, where they they brought up uh China and they were showing, um, like the mountains and the swamps. Um, Because I was just thinking, like, oh, I wonder if when they were making this, they were making notes and like, oh, here's how we would invade China. And, you know, here's the Disney um, sort of anim- animations on how to get into China. Well, you um, were talking about how Russia is basically an ally at this point. But again, General Patton, after they you know took their part of Ber- or Germany, I guess they make it away Berlin. But uh, he was like, let's just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wasn't wrong, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but then you would have several more years of horribly bloody war against uh, Uncle Joe Stalin, which wouldn't be cool. Because <laughs> I mean, know. it's it's easier in retrospect since I was born after all of that had already you know ended essentially. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I don't know how broken Russia was at that point. I mean, they rebounded a lot, but you know, we 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 always have like band of brothers and stuff, and we don't. Again, Americans don't hear much about how much more horrible the Eastern Front was. I mean. Well, the Western I've, Front um, was fun and games compared to the Eastern Front. <laughs> I'm I'm beyond ignorant when it comes to like the farther we get away from America, the more ignorant I become about history. But there's there was a really interesting um conversation that was in the other day with with I got a, a one friend that lives in Russia and one friend that lives in Ukraine. Um and we were just kind of like having a very discussion about it, but it came up that Russia's like just how the United States, you could almost say at this point or in, in recent history, essentially desert storm area but um america's power specifically is probably air power like the united the air force is kind of like the main crown jewel essentially of the military um might i guess and for russia specifically in that that sort of time period like the kgb um even i guess putin's early days uh who's you know currently running russia but their main or their main like military power was information and propaganda and it wasn't necessarily like a specific way that they trained their troops or a specific technology that they had it was just like how they can brainwash people and not just the brainwashing because you could say any any military essentially brainwashes their people to like send them off into the battle and you know die for some nationalistic abstract concept but the way that they weaponize information and and compartmentalize things um russia was able to do to such an extreme degree to where like they perfected it to the point where everything was so compartmentalized no one could trust each other like even if me and you were like working like neck and neck as two generals like we couldn't trust each other not to be secretly plotting to kill or turn the other one in for treason and stuff and that's kind of where it went wrong versus the allies and i guess you know west quote-unquote western world um, since they base theirs on training and technology and strategy and not just information warfare, not just propaganda, that that's why the like, that's actually why 
it kind of won. You know, that's why the superpowers remain superpowers. Um, and, and likewise, in Jer- even in this movie and in, in the um, victory through air power movie, when they're mentioning Germany, they they bring up they they gloss over it very quickly. But they mentioned that one of the reasons why Germany could fall is because so much of their resources were being taken by force like they were you know essentially like forcing the populations and forcing the areas that they were taking over to give up their resources and therefore the people that were like living around nazi germany were just filled with disdain for nazi germany and therefore like even if they were giving up their resources it was almost by force um whereas again it was like hey everyone you know tighten your belts we're all going to collectively and voluntarily you know give up our resources to this war machine and that that dynamic alone of like hey everyone let's band our resources together and work as a team versus you know we need this i'm taking this from you that might have also been a, a huge element to the war you know that's that's kind of like the soft skills side of, of warfare Right. So this Eastern Front, you have, you know, the the, the Germans and the and this, you know, paranoid culture on both ends bashing heads and just, you know, um, if you read, there's some tomes about Stalingrad and Leningrad and man, talk about dire situations. Those are just like, again, what Band of Brothers is like watching Mickey Mouse compared to what was going down in those cities. <laughs> One yeah i mean to to end this on a really nice light note but like (laughs) what russia was doing at that time too was was starving out their more remote communities um and they would pretty much turn to cannibalism out of a necessity like to themselves like people would you know in the most extreme versions people someone might give up a leg to like feed themselves and their family for a little while and then rush the russian authorities would come back in and be like cannibals you know how disgusting are you people you're all going to jail now for being cannibals when it was like but you're starving us like we don't want to do this we didn't do this because it was like something we wanted to put on our diet it was literally the last thing that we could have done to survive you know how dare anyone put us to this extreme and then russia's like you sickos out to jail with you so that this extreme versus hey everyone let's tighten up our belts let's band together and like maybe you're not going to get a new you know chevrolet uh, car this year because that needs to go to the war machine but you'll get it in a few other years that's such a different you know version of banding resources compared to anywhere else that was happening during this wartime yeah um i guess we do need to wrap up today then what's what's up in your universe uh it is currently i don't know it's it's mid 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 august <laughs> Is it mid? Oh, okay. You're talking. You're talking in the future now. <laughs> yeah. <I'm- laughs> what am I doing in mid-August? I'm not sure yet. Um. Uh. I guess just the just the run of the mill paranoidamerican.com. Oh, that's it. I'm. I've been working on a new website, although it'll be ready in a month or two from now. What's that? December. <laughs> um. So yeah, new paranoidamerican.com. It should w- look and work the same, but I'm gonna actually have links to like. 10 new titles that have been available but just hard to find on amazon and coloring books and uh some other stuff and then also at this point again we're talking in the future the chosen one issue one should now be available on the west coast of united states and a handful of different small comic shops weed dispensaries um like used music stores just a whole bunch of cool places where you'll be able to find the comics in person and just kind of walk in and browse. So I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about that. That's exciting. Aren't you guys East coast or so? 
I am. Yeah, we're we're all in Florida, but the the distributor that I'm working with just happens to have a really big presence in Washington, Oregon, and some places in California. But maybe we'll expand and and bring that to the East Coast. I don't know. I don't no. know if I have the heart to to actually drive around and you know boots on the ground, knocking on doors and and pitching comics. But we'll see. Yeah, it is kind of nice to have uh, someone just West Coast for you too. <laughs> yeah, um, seriously. This one is i i guess we're gonna start calling the occult disney podcast but uh it's under the patreon umbrella of podcastio podcastius where you'll find me talking about the twilight zone and sci-fi films and you'll find some gamer podcasts about pokemon monster hunter and game game shows all right we talk some history we talk some strategy i hope we were more um interesting than zabirsky though <laughs> We we got some occult. I mean, we we talked about uh, paperclip. We talked about Hollow Earth. We talked about Antarctica, Lusitania, uh, Pearl Harbor conspiracy theories. Oh, 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 that I wasn't saying. That. I was just saying. I hope we were more interesting than he was. <laughs> oh, by far, by far. Space above the blue.